Hello and welcome to Discord, a podcast to explore the intersection between music and theatre. I'm Adam Lenson and week by week I will be trying to figure out the conundrum that is musical theatre. Welcome to episode four. Discord. Those who've been listening to the podcast so far will know that I like musical theatre. Or at least, I like some musical theatre. And I'm excited about what I think the genre is capable of. But not everyone likes musical theatre. In fact, something I hear quite regularly is the phrase, I hate musicals. And the thing is, people rarely say that about other works of art. People rarely say, I hate books, or I hate films, or I hate theatre. But they often say, I hate musicals. And I wanted to try and figure out why that is. So I decided to speak to a friend of mine, the theatre maker David Ralph. David is someone I've known for a long time, and during that time he regularly says to me that he dislikes musicals. But a lot of his theatre contains music, and the entire process by which he makes theatre is very respectful of music, and a whole load of different elements. In this episode, I wanted to speak to him about what exactly he meant when he said he hated musicals, and what exactly the idea of hating musicals even was. But I wasn't just talking to David in order to disagree with him. I wanted to know why he hated musicals, what he disliked about them, and try and figure out how maybe we can use some of the things that he dislikes about musical theatre, or maybe some of his perceptions of what a musical is, in order to make musical theatre, or indeed, the intersection of music and theatre, better. So I should probably start by letting David Ralph tell you a bit about himself. Uh, I trained at the Jacques Lecoq School in Paris, um, having done an English literature degree, and I run a company called On The Run uh, with Hannah Moss. And the work that we've made, we're about to open our second show in Edinburgh. Um, Both shows that we've made have been autobiographical and um, one based on Hannah's experience, one based on mine and quite informed by a Lecoq approach to devising and movement. Um, And what's next after that, I don't know because I don't think that we are people who will only ever make autobiographical theatre. And I'm absorbing more influences now than just my Lecoq background, so I don't know where where it goes in the future but that's where we're at now initially david wasn't quite sure what exactly i wanted to interview him about what are we talking about today by the way uh you, you hating musicals why i hate musicals okay <laughs> i mean i feel the fan but i haven't seen any it's not really going to count in my favor it turns out that david is exaggerating he has seen musicals but just not very many but even the few that he has seen are enough for him to make assumptions about what the genre is and why he's not that keen on it Okay, so the, the provocative question I was going to start with is, have you ever said the words, I hate musicals? Yes. Okay. We realised that David had allowed the very few musicals he had seen to shape his idea of what a musical was. And a series of assumptions were largely responsible for him thinking that the genre of musical theatre wasn't something that he was interested in. I think when I say musicals in that sort of context, what I mean is big budget West End musicals. And I wonder if it would be fair to say that I don't like big-budget West End theatre and I consider musicals to be the absolute like apex of everything I hate about that sort of commercial theatre. Um, I think also, like, I've lived in London for five years and uh, I think in that time, perhaps more than ever, commercial theatre has played it very, very safe. So, for example, um, doing the stage version of a famous much loved old film I mean oldish film you know, like Legally Blonde or Sister Act or whatever strikes me as so transparently commercially safe 
and therefore artistically unambitious that it kind of repulses me. Mm-hmm. Clearly there's a market for that sort of thing and I've, you know, those people can go off and enjoy it, but it's not for me. And I think I sort of bundle musical theatre up in that in that whole world. But um, obviously that's not really fair because just as we have theatre, which is different to commercial theatre and theatre's a broad landscape, I guess musical theatre is the same. I think that one answer, David, explains a huge amount of the assumptions that we make about musical theatre. The idea that they require a big budget, that they belong in the West End, that they are safe and that they are often adaptations of known titles, whether or not that's a film or a book or something that we already know extremely well. I really find it interesting the way David conflates the idea of commercial safety with a lack of ambition. Another interesting thing that he notes is that there is, of course, an audience for these well-known, big-budget West End musicals. But does the fact that there is an audience for them mean that we only ever try and appeal to that audience rather than broadening that audience? Or do we only ever give that audience what they know that they want rather than trying to give them something different? In so doing, are we just creating the same thing over and over again, but potentially a diluted version of that thing? I think David's assumptions are the sort of assumptions that many people make about musical theatre. And because of that, they see the genre as able to achieve a certain amount of things. But those things are quite restrictive, if you think about it. If it has to be big and showy and belong in a West End theatre, appeal to the widest possible audience and be safe and exactly what you expect, then one, how is that genre going to innovate? And two, how is it going to interest the sort of theatre makers that regularly do innovate? We go on to discuss the idea that a musical aimed at the West End is designed for a long run. Yeah, and there's something for me slightly uncomfortable about the idea of creating a piece of theatre that you think is going to be, that's going to run every night for five years because there's something temporal, I think, about productions that's exciting as part of what I like about theatre, that they're sort of rooted in the moment and the fact that you can't go back and watch them if you miss them in the way that you can with films, for me, is kind of exciting. That sort of slightly ephemeral quality that they have is exciting. And again, once it becomes a product that you can just go and pick up off the shelf and it'll be there in five years if you still want to buy it in five years. It, that's, that's some of the magic lost for me. If a show is very successful, then it will run for a long period of time. I've got nothing against that. I've also got nothing against the idea of very expensive shows being made with the aim of running for a long time. But what does bother me is the idea that musical theatre has to be of a large scale and that musicals have to run for a long period of time for us to acknowledge their success. I think the requirement for musical theatre to make large-scale, long-running shows that have to have a wide-ranging appeal restricts what the genre can do, or restricts what people think the genre can do. Because personally, I think the genre can do anything and everything, from the weird and the quirky, to the heartbreaking, to the dark, to the emotional, to the strange. And I think theatre makers like David could absolutely adore what a musical is capable of, but I think somewhere along the line we've lost hope in that capability thinking that musicals are only good for one type of thing. And I think that belief is that musicals have to be big, appealing and commercial. I tell David about the fact that there are shows such as Wicked and Les Miserables, which are exactly the same in every territory in which they play, and that if there is a change made in one territory, that it is rolled out to all of the others. 
Yeah, which is a little bit like Starbucks or McDonald's. Like, it doesn't matter where you buy your Starbucks latte. It's meant to taste the same. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter which Premier Inn you go to. The curtains are the same colour. And there's something, like, (laughs) kind of reliable about that and you know what you're getting. Even though the uniformity of Starbucks and McDonald's can be comforting in some way, that you aren't going to get the best cup of coffee at Starbucks and you're certainly not going to get the best burger at McDonald's. I, I don't know why I would buy a ticket to something knowing what I was getting. Like part, part of the joy is that you don't know what you're going to get. As in our last episode, the idea of expectation comes up of not wanting to know what you're going to see. But again, I think in musical theatre, people often do want to know what they're going to see, hence why they like musicals. But the only way in which we're really going to engage different audiences is by allowing them the possibility of making and seeing things that they don't know that they want yet and that they definitely don't expect. But I think also, like, we really have to acknowledge here is that most people don't go to the theatre very often and really don't want to not like it. I can totally see why you would buy a ticket to something kind of knowing what you were going to get, because if you're only going to go to the theatre once a year and it costs a lot of money and you're going for your nan's birthday, you don't necessarily want to take... You don't, we don't want there to be risk involved in that. You yeah. want a safe bet. We're going to see Alistair McDowell's new play Pomona, Grant. <laughs> Well, exactly, yeah. <laughs> There's also a perception that that sort of thing is hard work and that musicals are easy. And, you know, I think we have to acknowledge there is a, perhaps a degree of sort of snobbery at work um, when we look down on commercial theatre in a sense that something that appeals to almost everyone mm-hmm. must, by definition, not appeal to me because then I'm really bland and normal. So I get that people are going to want to see theatre that they know will be appealing and there are going to be people that want to go and see theatre that they hope won't be or that will defy expectations. And I understand that there's a continuum of theatre from accessible all the way down to unaccessible. I suppose what worries me from these conversations is that musical theatre seems only to be entitled to one end of that spectrum. And the existence of people who are able to say, I hate musicals, is because there's not a part of the musical theatre spectrum encompasses the sort of work that they want to see or that they want to make. By broadening the spectrum, maybe that's how we'll get rid of the idea of hating musicals in the same way that it doesn't seem to exist for plays or books or films, because all of those things have an incredibly wide spectrum of what we think they can achieve and what we think they can contain. I remember Simon Armitage, the poet, being interviewed, and I found what he said incredibly refreshing, because the person interviewing him asked him a question about how to get more people enthused about poetry, more young people enthused about poetry, and... The tone of the question implied that the ideal situation would be that everyone in the world would love poetry and how did Simon Armitage think that you could achieve that? And he actually said, like, that could never happen with poetry and that should never happen with poetry because part of poetry is that most people don't like it (laughs) because it's an art form that is quite hard work Mm -hmm. and most people, understandably, aren't that interested in putting in that work, which is fine, but if you could somehow create poetry that wasn't hard work and therefore appealed to anyone, it wouldn't be poetry anymore. And he actually quite liked there being something about it it being a slightly niche art form that put as many people off as it inspired. It seems to me that Simon Armitage is saying that poetry is codified as an inaccessible art form. And I wonder if potentially musical theatre has codified itself as an accessible art form. This makes me think that forcing certain types of work to be of a certain level of accessibility is really damaging to the type of work that gets made. I'm not saying we can't have inaccessible poetry, but that we should have accessible poetry too. I'm not saying we shouldn't have accessible musical theatre, but that we should be open to inaccessible, knotty and complicated musicals too. 
and went on to ask David if he thought there was the possibility of a musical with the complexity and tone of a play by Carol Churchill. I see no reason whatsoever why you couldn't have a Carol Churchill play with songs in. I think it's just to do with the quality of the music. But I think, um, so again, when I think of musical theatre, I'm thinking of a genre of music, a very, very specific genre of music, which is probably largely informed by having grown up watching Disney films. Throughout our interview, when talking about the style of musical theatre songs in America, David uses the word Disney, which considering most Disney films of the last 20 years have been written by American musical theatre writers such as Howard Ashman, Alan Menken, Stephen Schwartz, is actually a pretty good reference point. And I assume that those are the sorts of songs I'm going to find. Now, if you look at the broad spectrum of music, in the broadest possible sense, of course, those kind of Disney-style musical theatre songs are the tiniest, tiniest percentile. And I feel as though one way in which we could create theatre with music in it that was as charged as a great piece of drama would be simply to use a different kind of music. Um, and I'm, I have my own kind of particular areas of interest in, in terms of music that are separate to theatre, but I often wonder how I could combine them in my own work. And indeed there are musicals that are beginning to use different styles of music from that normally attributed to musical theatre, be it rock music at musicals like Spring Awakening or hip-hop in musicals such as Hamilton. I think to give musical theatre a rap on the knuckles, there is too often a use of a similar type of music, even when the type of story being told doesn't call for it, just because that's the type of music that people are used to. I think what David is saying is that we should be open to using any type of music in our theatre, and that in doing so, that we can broaden the type of stories that are able to be told successfully. Another reason David gives for disliking musicals is that music is by its very nature manipulative. It's true on the one hand that music can be very evocative and very emotive, but it's also true that people know that. And so if you're not subtle, then again, it's too transparently manipulative. Um, I mean, you saw the, the last show that I made, which was about death and about grief. The piece David is talking about is one called So It Goes and was created by him and his company On The Run. Interestingly, the piece contained very little dialogue at all and instead used silence very evocatively, but also used a lot of tonal underscore and music throughout. You saw the, the last show that I made, which was about death and about grief, based on my partner Hannah's experience of losing her dad when she was 17. And one of Hannah's rules absolutely from day one was there will be no sad music in this production. And I kept bringing stuff in going, like, it's not really sad, but it's kind of moody and evocative. Maybe we could use this. I really, and she was like, absolutely no. And I think it was a better production for that because that would have been a really easy choice that I think would have detracted from what was going on on stage and made us quite lazy about what we were doing on stage because the music would have been doing all the work for us. I think what David is implying is that music is capable of doing a lot of emotional heavy lifting and thus we can come to rely on that heavy lifting. I think one of the reasons that he potentially is suspicious of musical theatre is the fact that music is overburdened with the task of telling that story and thus the idea that that music has to be manipulative and do the thinking for us. But as I've said before, musical theatre is a convergent genre and I think at its best there is an equal weighting of music, lyric, dialogue and underscore as well as the physical production and the performances on stage, which hopefully bring together and more clearly 
demonstrate the story that's trying to be told, rather than just relying on one thing. After all, we're not going to a musical to see a concert, we're going to see a piece of theatre, and music is just one part of that evening at the theatre. When I think of musicals, something I think about musicals, and one of the reasons why I think I get a bit turned off by those songs, is earnestness. I think Americans have an extraordinarily high tolerance for earnestness. In fact, I don't think they really understand the concept because they don't know when they're doing it and everything is earnest for them. Brits, I think, hate earnestness. And I think that's why there's a real snobbery about musical theatre, is the idea that these people kind of like pouring out these emotions through song. There's just something terribly earnest about it. I do wonder if that's a difference between British and American audiences, and I do wonder if that's where part of the snobbery comes from. Because there's something glorious and beautiful about all of those defences that we normally put up in everyday life to hide our feelings being removed and what gushes out when we take them away gushes out in the form of song, which I think is presumably what good musical theatre is trying to do a lot of the time. But at the same time, I wonder how much of that we can really take as British audiences before it starts to... Before, and I'm not saying this is a good thing, but I think it's a realistic thing to say that sometimes people go, oh, mate, I don't put your emotions back in the locker. I'm not comfortable with this. And it's why we love Ibsen. It's why we're still watching Victorian plays by Ibsen, because that's a culture in which people had to repress everything. So there's a huge amount of subtext. And I think we read that really easily. We're like, oh, I get that the situation is this, but I also get that no one is saying that the situation is this. And I get that what people are saying out loud does not necessarily correspond with what they actually feel and like that multi-layered thing and that thing of, a, of showing not telling and a character not just walking on stage and like I mean this, that's interesting actually in a play if a character walked on stage and just said I feel like this today you would think that was not great playwriting and yet the song in a musical seems to exist to do exactly that now it's a little bit more artful now because you found a form in which they can say that and that form is music yeah. But still, maybe there's something there where we just kind of go, this, this is why this feels simplistic to me. There's no subtext here. I'm not having to do any work here. I'm just being told. I think once again, David is reacting against being told how to feel. And I also think criticisms of musical theatre lacking subtext and being overly earnest are true in some cases. I also think that in Britain, we have to respond to the fact that maybe we can't put up with such overt displays of emotion and that maybe musical theatre has to be calibrated emotionally to the culture it's being written for. So I feel like we have to talk about Political Mother, which is a show by Hoffe Schechter, who's one of the um, associate oh. choreographers at Sadler's World. Interestingly, as well as his company's international dance work, Hoffe Schechter also recently choreographed Fiddler on the Roof on Broadway. This is the first time a major production of Fiddler on the Roof was allowed to use new choreography as opposed to the original choreography of Jerome Robbins. So he has already shown himself to have a foot in both the avant-garde dance world and that of musical theatre. So Political Mother, for those who haven't seen it, is a show by Hoffa Schechter, who's uh, an Israeli choreographer, um, now an associate at Sadler's Wells. And his work is, um, is quite kind of knowing, um, not, not in a bad way, um, but it kind of is it's quite postmodern in the sense that it plays with theatrical convention and occasionally sort of slightly winks at the audience with its own kind of silliness but at the same time has a kind of just a bravado that is breathtaking. And Political Mother, I saw it at Brixton Academy, 
where they'd consciously taken it out of venues like Sadler's Wells and put it into rock venues. So I saw it at Brixton Academy. I was, I mean, it was like the dream, basically. I was standing up, surrounded by mostly teenagers who were obviously really into contemporary dance themselves. And the piece itself had, uh, had a string section. There were probably about 10 uh, string players, cellos, violins, etc., um, on a raised level. And then on a raised level above that, there was a kind of rock orchestra rock band so the whole effect was of a rock orchestra so on that top level they had electric guitars um drummer um and then like massive gongs and timpanis and stuff so it had the aesthetic of a rock concert and it had the music had the aesthetic of a metal band but with strings as well um and the dancing was absolutely phenomenal i'm not an expert but i say i'm not an expert i basically know nothing about contemporary dance so i can't really speak about it in a way that would do it justice but it blew my mind but that was partly because the whole experience blew my mind and it blew my mind just probably else through volume in the same way that going to a punk gig did when i was 14 mm-hmm. and you'll never forget that feeling the first feeling of going into a grimy little venue for your first gig and there's guys playing guitars really loudly and equally, if I go out clubbing now and I listen to my beloved aggressively experimental electronic music, there's no point doing that in a place with a crap sound system. You do that in a dark room with the music very, very loud and that kind of sense of sonic assault is part of the overall experience. And Political Mother recreated that experience but recontextualised it in a sort of theatrical setting. Um, I'd love to see a, I'd love to see more stuff like that and I'd love to see a piece of drama do that. I'd love to see how that sits with story because there wasn't particularly a narrative at work. Um, in Political Mother Um, but when I think about what can music do that ability to really just kind of shake me and rattle me and and also just kind of blow my head off with its sheer volume I mean it's it's crude but that's part of what I've consistently enjoyed about going to see live bands or going clubbing um, and that's something I'd love to, you know, I'd love to, I'd love to get a function one sound system in the Olivier. <laughs> one of the interesting things about talking about Hofer Schechter is realising that there are some theatre makers who have the ability to slip and slide between various styles of work. Hofer Schechter's ability to work in both avant-garde dance and also commercial Broadway theatre is very interesting to me. Another theatre director who I think typifies an ability to move between styles and genres is Belgian director Ivo van Hover, who, as well as creating revitalised versions of Shakespeare, has also directed Arthur Miller, such as A View from the Bridge and the Crucible, and was also recently the director of David Bowie's musical Lazarus, which had a script by playwright Ender Walsh. I think something potentially about the creation of convergent multidisciplinary work and the way that those theatre makers use all sorts of different things, be they music, movement, video, uh, text, is something that allows them to feel perfectly able to slip and slide between various different styles and types of that work. And I wonder if maybe if more theatre makers, unknown for making musicals, move towards making musicals if that would broaden the type of musical theatre that was being made. I asked David if music was an intrinsic part of Political Mother. Would it have been anything without music? No, absolutely not. And not only that, but the music had to be live. And I think, I mean, again, I haven't seen as much dance work as I would like, but I don't necessarily, if I go to Sad as well, expect to see the band on stage. So a key part of Political Mother was that the band were visible and they were playing live and they were part part of the aesthetic. I go on to mention to David that I want people to write musicals that are different from Les Miserables and Wicked. 
but that I don't necessarily want people to ignore some of the brilliant things that those two musicals and many other musicals do very, very well. I talked to David about the craft and the history of musical theatre and how I wouldn't want those things to be ignored just because. I asked him what he thinks of the idea of craft and structure in musical theatre accidentally leading to musicals being formulaic and repetitive. But I think like a lot of artists find themselves in that tussle. I think they find themselves kind of squabbling with different parts of themselves or different parts of their training or their experience. Um, I mean, I trained at the Lecoq School in Paris and half, the t- I mean, at firstly, take, I probably take for granted a lot of the stuff that I learned there because I've forgotten that I didn't always know it, which probably makes me ungrateful towards that school because I forget how much it's taught me. Mm. And half the time I find myself really in conflict with stuff I was taught there or in conflict with work I see from other companies who come out of the school, which is so, like uninteresting to me because I've seen that stuff a million times before that actually I feel very much like I'm now trying to kick against certain elements of that training but I think also that's a completely normal and healthy relationship to have with anything like that and I think that thing of I want to work in this style because I love this style but I'm motivated to make work in this style because I currently hate everything being made in this style (laughs) Um, I think that motivates a lot of people and I think that's a really good motivation to have I like the fact that David thinks that knowledge is a good thing, but also believes that tussling with that knowledge, disputing that knowledge, and disagreeing with that knowledge can often be a regular part of being an artist. Next, David went on to wonder if perhaps his disagreement with musicals comes from the fact that they don't exist as much in the contemporary moment as plays do. So I think everything I've ever really enjoyed, I've enjoyed because I've found it somehow edgy, and I'm putting edgy in inverted in air quotes because it's a silly word to use. But I have to confess that I think there's something in that. Um, And I think what I mean by edgy is contemporary or relevant and different. So I guess one of my reservations about musical theatre would be, is it going to be one of those pieces that's completely divorced from context and from what's going on in the world in 2016? Will it just look like the same kind of musical they'd have made if they did it 10 years ago and the same kind of musical that they will make in 10 years' time? This leads me to wonder if musical theatre is obsessed with escapism, with taking you away from your life, whereas it seems David, like a lot of people, enjoy theatre that allows you to engage more closely with the contemporary moment and with our lives as they are right now. I go on to ask David why he thinks that theatre makers in this country are so much more confident with Shakespeare, Ibsen and Chekhov than they are with musical theatre. Fascinatingly, he goes on to theorise that maybe it's something to do with university. I would hazard a guess that in a British context that comes from that, the, the separation of English literature as a university degree from theatre studies as a, as a university degree. A lot of British theatre directors have basically done an English degree at Oxbridge or somewhere similar. And I can tell you from experience, you don't study musicals if you do English at Oxford or Cambridge. Um, But you do study Ibsen, exactly. So you've got this academic background in those plays and you've developed a certain confidence in your ability to talk about those plays because that is what you are trained to do. Nobody teaches you about um, any musical writers. And I wonder if that's where that fault line starts to be established, that you get all of these people coming out into the world who can speak very confidently about the theatre canon and have no knowledge about the musical theatre canon. As we discuss the ideas of theatre makers and directors sticking to what they know, we move on to the idea of theatres playing it safe with audiences and that restricting the type of work that gets on and the innovation of that type of work. And I think ultimately what we have to say is that audiences are being shortchanged. And like I'm actually preparing to leave London at the moment and move back to my hometown 
So I'm interested in regional theatre at the moment. And you can see very definitely that there are certain regional theatres that, despite the very difficult kind of like budget and financial climate that we're, funding climate that we're in at the moment, are still managing to do really amazing stuff and make their regional theatre a really exciting hub. And there are others that just aren't. And it's partly through lack of imagination, it's partly through lack of passion, but it's mainly through a kind of lack of, well, it's just, just playing it incredibly safe financially. And catering, it's, it's the equivalent of in an election doing a core vote strategy. It's like you just try and soak up the votes that you sort of know you can quite easily soak up if you just say the obvious things yeah. and you hope that that will swing you the election. And I think that there's a lot of regional theatres and theatres in London, I'm sure, um, being run on that model. And the problem with that is not... The biggest problem with that is not that I, David Ralph, don't get to do cool shows in those venues. The problem is that those regional audiences that may only have one theatre in their town are being massively shortchanged. Yeah. And I think that the audiences in those places are so much more ready for exciting work than anyone gives them credit for. But even if audiences are ready for more innovative theatre, musicals have the problem of being intrinsically more expensive, whether that's musicians or increased technical demands. This means innovation tends to skew away from musical theatre. Our conversation weaves through various tangents. We talk about Katie Mitchell and her work on opera, Benedict Andrews and even Van Hover on their integrated songs in their theatre, And then we talk of the idea of plays with songs before leaning into the idea of the words musical theatre and whether that banner is even correct anymore. I just wonder, what this reminds me of is um, (laughs) like political parties and how they can become such toxic brands that they just can't can't progress. And so you have to rename Labour New Labour because you've made a decision that you will basically just never get rid of the negative associations that people have with the Labour Party of the 80s until you've rebranded it so much that you've actually changed the name. So it feels to me like the question for you is, do you stubbornly cling on to recalling your party by the name it's always been called, even though a lot of people that you want to engage have rejected that a long, long time ago? Or do you rebrand? My worry is, if we smash the term, people will have even more reason to ignore the canon I think people have even more reason not to stand on the shoulders of the giants before. For reasons discussed earlier this episode, I know that potentially there aren't musicals that appeal to all ranges of the theatrical spectrum and the theatrical audience although I know that there are a lot more than people initially think if they were to go looking. But I think the great musicals made so far, whether you like the style or the tone of them, contain great lessons about craft, storytelling, the use of music, scene into song, the way music underscores different scenes, and the way it can help to convey information that text on its own simply can't convey. I wouldn't want that to be ignored. I think there's a parallel here with contemporary theatre. When David talks about contemporary theatre, he's talking about the kind of work which is trying to be bold and experimental and partly exist in opposition to the canon-centric mainstream theatre. I think there's a parallel here with contemporary theatre. So I think what you're saying is probably very similar to something I feel. And, I I mean, I don't want to sound snobby, but I I just don't know if you can just not know about Shakespeare if you're working in theatre. You can dislike it, but I don't know if you can not know about it. And I don't know if what it says about you if you think there's nothing that you can learn from it. 
which is not the same as liking it. And the history is kind of dull, and you have to learn your history and then shrug it off, but that's not the same as not knowing it. And I think that probably the like, really, really, really great contemporary theatre makers do know their Shakespeare and do know their Greek tragedy and probably could have been amazing conventional actors if they'd chosen that path. And that's why their groundbreaking work is so good. But I also think that they wear all that knowledge and influence very lightly. Like, I don't necessarily know that about them, and I don't need to know that about them to think that their work is amazing. I just suspect that's the case. Like, deep and buried in their past is actually a quite encyclopedic knowledge. I love this idea of having knowledge and wearing it very lightly, of knowing your Shakespeare, of knowing your Greek tragedy, but just not necessarily going on about it all the time. I think musical theatre can be similar. People can know the history and just not go on about it all the time. They can wear it very lightly. I like the fact that you might not even need to like Shakespeare in order to use what he has to say. In a similar way, maybe disliking musical theatre doesn't mean that you have to ignore it in order to make theatre and music intersect in a new and satisfying way. I know personally that I've read a lot of things and seen a lot of things, not because I was necessarily interested in them, but because I thought knowing about them would make me a better theatre director. I've never known a situation in which knowledge is a bad thing. But sometimes in musical theatre, people think knowing about it will in some way ruin their theatre making. Maybe in order to explain to the world that that is what you're trying to do, you need to stop using a phrase like musical theatre, which immediately makes everyone go... Oh, that, yeah, well, there's, this is how you do that, right? I think in the same way that audiences' expectations of musicals aren't necessarily correct, people's expectations of how to make musicals aren't correct too, because people haven't really ever done a deep dive into the genre and all that it contains. And that doesn't mean spending years in the genre. It means looking through the depth and the extremes of what it contains, the strange shows, the unusual shows, the flop shows and the hit shows. Spending a bit of time reading around the subject, even if you don't like the subject, but learning from that. I asked David what he thinks of people who make musicals who have publicly announced that they dislike the genre. I can't believe that that person would be working on that show if they genuinely hated musicals. I just don't believe it. Um, I, th- I think, firstly, that they're saying that because they feel defensive and they're so desperate not to be tarred with this, like perceived to be toxic label of musical theatre that they drastically overcompensate which is a bit puerile and I agree it's frustrating Um, but I think also probably those people are a bit I mean I think they probably deep down sort of love but also hate musical theatre I think maybe they love hate musical theatre and I think maybe they are a bit there's a part of them there's the guilty pleasure part of them that, you know, could probably whack on the Lion King and sing along to Akuna Matata and enjoy it and then get a bit weepy in how... Not how deep is your love, that's to take that song. Can you feel the love tonight? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Because I think we all have those childhood experiences and I think a lot of people um, making contemporary musicals who claim to hate musicals are actually just embarrassed to admit that when they were kids they loved Aladdin and that they quite like to be able to recreate some of that buzz in their own work. I mean, it's something I find a lot with theatre makers and comedians, actually, is that they're all jealous of rock bands because there's something so undeniably both cool and visceral about just, like, a band striking up that just instantly makes you feel something because how could you not? And everyone working in theatre wants their audiences to feel like that, except they never do. And so I think a lot of people making these contemporary new musicals that's what they're trying to capture because they've always wanted to have that in their work. I agree with you. I don't know why they need to feel so embarrassed about that. I think if people liked Disney films when they were younger, 
then great. If people like the feeling of bands starting up, great. Those are all the things that make musical theatre wonderful. Combine that with a little bit of knowledge about the craft and the history of musical theatre, worn lightly, and a little bit of respect for what the genre can be, rather than expectation of what we think it already is. And maybe those people that hate musicals really like them and could be the people that could help save the future of the genre if they put their hands up. David asks me why I care so much about the label of musical theatre, whether it matters whether I call shows I make a musical, whether it matters if shows call themselves musicals at all. Let's say you get to make your dream show and we haven't given it a name yet. Does it feel to you like a big deal whether you advertise it to the world as a musical as opposed to just taking everything you know about musicals, using it to brilliant effect on a piece of drama and then just calling it a piece of theatre and people turn up and there's like the bonus thing of, oh wow, there was loads of music in it. On the one hand, as a director who cares about music a great deal and sees its power to tell stories and be part of conveying more information than text can on its own, maybe I shouldn't care. Maybe I should just make work with songs in. But we live in a we live in a theatrical landscape which defines things and defines the places work can be made. And what, one of my frustrations, maybe that's at the heart of why I'm making this podcast. One of my frustrations is, and I put it in my trailer. Nihai and Complicite are two of my favourite companies. I like most work at the Barbican more than I like work in the West End. I like musical theatre when it's really good. The best sometimes, there ain't much better than that. And I want to combine all of those things into a form. And I want that form to exist not because just because I make it. I want it to exist. I want the landscape to melt together and it, there not to be these boundaries. I feel that those boundaries are melting in almost every way. There are these incredible productions of Shakespeare done by European directors. There is this director's theatre. There is There are amazing devised video pieces and dance theatre. Everything's melting together due to the amazingness of directors such as Katie Mitchell and Rupert Gould and people who will just take from anywhere. But why is musical theatre just trapped in a bubble? It just makes me so <laughs> sad that musicals are there in that bubble, yeah, yeah. making a shitload of money. But vice versa as well, that Katie Mitchell and Rupert Gould <clears throat> will borrow from everything except commercial musical theatre, which is somehow toxic. Well, basically, it's trapped in a bubble which is somehow toxic, but somehow makes all of the money. Yeah. <laughs> so somehow it's the most it's the success story of global theatre, musical theatre. But yet because of that, it's trapped in a bubble where people have to be afraid of it or scared of it or don't use it or don't talk about... Don't, and if people want to make a musical, it has to scan badly and they have to ignore perfect rhyme and they have to not ever know what the words diegetic and non-diegetic mean and they have to not know how a scene into song moment could be calibrated to make it better and that somehow we have to ignore everything good about musicals in order to make a new British, whatever we would call it, show that involves singing, a play with songs, a deconstructed song tone poem, a kind of op <laughs> an operatic, um, I don't know, um, cycle. Sorry about the rant, but what I just said to David is a pretty good example of how I sometimes feel about musical theatre. I finished my interview with David by asking him a few yes or no questions. Do you like music? Yes. Do you like theatre? Yes. Do you like interdisciplinary theatre? Yes. Is it possible that you could like 
a musical because of the fact that it would contain the elements of interdisciplinary theatre and music and theatre and storytelling narrative. Yes. So how can I summarise the reasons for which David has been able to say that he hates musical theatre? I think the first reason is knowledge. It's important that we know enough, and as he himself has said, be able to wear that knowledge very lightly. Musical theatre has a tremendous amount of craft and history that we often ignore because we disagree with the tone and the style of musicals that have been made. But I only think by acknowledging that craft and that history and looking for examples of musical theatre history that we respect can we hope to make good new musicals. Secondly, David has worried that musical theatre means commercial theatre and thus that musicals have to be big and accessible and commercially viable and thus artistically unambitious. But I think we have to make sure that that is not the case. Make sure that as well as accessible musicals, we allow there to be inaccessible and complicated and difficult and knotty musicals so that we engage new audiences and new theatre makers. Thirdly, David worried that perhaps musical theatre is too earnest and that it lacks subtext compared to other genres. And I think that is something we should look at seriously and make sure that musical theatre is used simply to convey information that can't be conveyed in any other form rather than simply using it to convey uncomplicated emotions and earnestness. Fourthly, he worried that musical theatre is too manipulative and that it uses music in order to tell us how to feel. I think it's important that we look at that too and make sure that music doesn't do all of the heavy lifting but that simply is a part of a convergent genre which uses any and all of the means possible in order to tell a story effectively. Finally, David has worried that musical theatre uses too restricted a form of music in order to tell its stories and this I think is also important. We should be using new and diverse forms of music in order to tell stories. We shouldn't be restricted to a type of music because stories come from everywhere and so does music and we should be looking for the best form of music to tell the story that we want to tell. I've gone back and forward over whether the words musical theatre should be broadened or whether we should destroy them. And after this conversation, I don't think we should destroy them. I think we need them to connect us to the years of history and craft that musicals have had. But I also think we need to broaden the parameters of what a musical can contain, the types of music, the type of complexity, and the scale and the longevity that musicals are expected to keep. I think if we do those things, but are still proud of the words musical theatre, then we might have a chance. As you can tell, I'm interested in all of the boundaries blurring, of all of the types of theatre melting together. I still think we need names for them, but I want them to overlap so much that the centre of the Venn diagram is a very exciting place to be indeed. I don't want musical theatre trapped in its own little bubble. I want it to be part of a big melting pot. Join me next week for a little less conversation and a little more music. Discord was hosted and produced by me, Adam Lenson. Editorial supervision was by Emma Clauber. Editorial support was from Daisy Shute, Michael Conley, Jonathan Lenson, Sarah Middleton, and Oliver Soans. Incidental music was by L.P. Legrand. Our theme music is by Luke Bateman.
Let us know what you think by writing to us on Twitter at Discord Theatre or to me at Adam Lenson.